Ramble. Bada bing, bada boom. Elise Stern is one of the top real estate agents in all of Toronto. And it was December 15th of 2017. It's a Friday morning, 22 degrees Fahrenheit in Toronto. She's about to show two clients from China and their realtor a $6.9 million mansion. This house feels very inconspicuous from the outside. You wouldn't know it's a $7 million house. Back when it was built, the house was considered a modern mansion. It's got these sharp, square, angular designs and these very high ceilings. It's constructed from what looks like concrete slabs. And back in the day, you know those glass bricks? Do you know what I'm talking about? They're like glorified glass cubes that are blurry and you can't really look at into it Mm, a lot of that is used and it just you know now in 2017 it does feel a little bit outdated and a little bit cold honestly the asking price of nearly seven million dollars though is due to the size of the house and the location I mean, this place is massive. Three levels, 12,000 square feet, 4,000 square feet per level of the home. I mean, most people's whole entire house isn't 4,000 square feet. That's just one floor. But the main selling point is the zip code. The neighborhood is filled with successful families, owners of businesses, CEOs of major corporations, doctors, surgeons. And now a ton of foreign investors are coming in like this Chinese couple. Now, to give you some context, this very house that Elise was about to give a tour of belonged to Barry and Honey Sherman, one of the richest families in all of Canada, if not the world. Their estimated net worth is close to $7 billion. Wow. Billion with a B. They owned the largest pharmaceutical company in Canada. You could argue they're big pharma. The couple would host gatherings in this house with elite Canadian business figures and even the prime minister, Justin Trudeau. He frequented the Sherman family residence. I think that gives you some sort of insight on what kind of neighborhood this is, but also what kind of home this is. Hopefully, the potential buyers are going to be impressed by the location, the size, the outdoor swimming pool, the outdoor tennis court, jacuzzi, cedar sauna, and the underground lap pool. When they pull into the driveway, Elise starts her tour. She opens up the front door and inside, the housekeeper is there. Elise makes a little bit of small talk while leading the potential buyers from room to room. She knows which features to dwell on. The big kitchen, people like that. Spacious living room, great for families, people like that. The modern spiral staircase that leads down into the basement, people like that. And Elise knew which rooms to just kind of breeze past. And this is the, um, the hobby room, media room, I guess, if you will. The clients kind of poked their heads into this room, and Elise knew that this room was kind of creepy. It was probably part of her plan to spend as little time as possible in this room with potential buyers. So the room itself is all right. It's the choice of art. Inside the media room, there are two colorful life-size figures, human size. And they're not even figures. They look straight up like sculptures of one woman, one man. They're sitting next to each other side by side on top of these giant speakers. And they're multimedia sculptures. So these humans, they're made of not just marble or clay, but they're made of like license plates, old wood, pipes, pieces of skateboards. So it's like some kind of art? Yeah, they look like a sustainable version of Ex Machina. You know, the AI Mm -hmm. robot, if she was made up of like recycled material only. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's just a decoration, though. Yeah, but people think they look kind of like creepy mannequins, uh, honestly. Okay. It's a very specific type of art that only rich and eccentric people would be into. And Elise didn't like it. And she could sense that the Chinese buyers didn't like it either. 
It's rumored that Elise actually begged the Shermans to put the statues into storage while they did the real estate listing photos and the tours of the home, but they refused. They loved their very interesting, eccentric art. Elise tries to make this very quick. She's like, this is the media room. Like, let's just head out. But as she's leading the clients out of this media room, she does notice something. The window to the room is open about six inches. Interesting. She leads them down into the basement next. So there are two staircases that lead down here. This is the main one. Oh, sorry. She starts quickly turning on all the lights. This is the recreation room. Then you have the sitting room, the garage, and Elise sees in front of the six-car garage door a few papers are just dropped on the floor, like literally middle of the hallway, on the ground. A pair of driving gloves are also next to it, and a Blackberry. It feels messy. Elise remembers thinking, what the hell? I'm trying to sell a house here. I'm trying to sell a house. Blackberry, the phone. Yeah. She smiles, bends down, quickly picks everything up, and she knew that this was Barry Sherman's Blackberry because he's the only person that she knows that still uses a Blackberry. So she quickly picks them all up, puts them on the ledge and smiles, and then opens the door to the underground garage. Then it's the cedar saunas. And now, ah, yes, the indoor lap pool. So in Canada, you have to have security features to keep children out. So you just press this. Elise reaches above her shoulder height, presses a red button, and opens the door to the indoor pool. The lights of the indoor pool are not on. But like most pools, it has a pool light. So imagine a pitch black room with no windows because this is basement level. There's no exterior. There's no skylight, no sun in this room, right? Pitch black, but the light in the pool is on and it's being filtered through the water and this very dark blue pool cover. It's almost just adding like a weird eerie glow into the room, a slightly blue black hue to everything. Mm. And it's a big room. I mean, the pool itself is 45 feet from one end to another. Wow. I'm sorry, I'm going to get very descriptive, but this this room is very important. The pool itself has two lanes and they have these silver railings around the perimeter of the pool. It kind of reminds me of Pilates bar or like the ballet bars that are made of steel. But instead of going into the pool like a hand railing, it's just on the side, like giant staples just stapled to the edge of the floor. Hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Like a little fence. Yes, but it's not really a fence because... Anyone under three feet could just slide right in and fall into the pool. Mm -hmm. It's literally just a U-shape upside down for my audio listeners, right? But if you guys are watching the video, I'm going to put a picture. I imagine if it's you're trying to walk out of the pool into the jacuzzi, because that's Mm. kind of where those railings start and stop. Mm. Okay. I think that's what they put it. The railings come about stomach height. So it feels like feels like handrails. They're about three feet tall. So they walk in a little bit. They don't turn on the light. And the other agent, the one representing the Chinese buyers, asks Elise, what's that? Elise kind of looks in the general direction that he's looking at. And her brain stops for a split second. That's what she says. You know when your brain doesn't actually know what you're seeing? She saw them, the Shermans. They're sitting on the floor on the edge of the pool. And they're facing away from the pool, away from Elise and them. And just kind of sitting there, eerily still, in darkness. Their heads were kind of extended as if they were being held up by something. And it was just so bizarre and unexpected. Elise wasn't immediately connecting any of the dots. It is likely that Elise was in shock. Elise didn't speak. So the other agent, his name is Zhao, he fills the silence with something along the lines of, oh, maybe just some more weird art. Because I think he also doesn't know what's going on. And considering they just saw some weird statues, he thinks, wow, these homeowners are kind of weird. And Elise said, 
I thought, yeah, okay, let's just go with that. So I said, yeah, yeah, they like weird art. Elise said that she did think perhaps that maybe the Shermans were doing yoga next to the pool. Hmm. Elise knew that one of the Sherman kids was a yoga instructor, so maybe they were practicing. But regardless, it was weird. She rushed them all out of there because, and I quote, I had my head on enough to know that whatever was going on, these strangers don't need to be a part of it. It was just a weird vibe. It was just a weird thing. Wait a minute. So they see the Sherman sitting there. Yeah. In a kind of strange yoga-like pose. Yes. They're not approaching to say hello? No. They just left? Yeah. Okay. Clearly, Elise knew that something was weird because she ends the tour early, rushes the clients out of there, and had one of the staff at home run downstairs to check on the Shermans, and they were not doing yoga. The billionaire couple were dead, and they were posed just like the statues in their media room, sitting next to their indoor lap pool, hanging from the pool railing. So remember how she said their necks looked extended? Mm Mm-hmm. Because there was a belt around their necks that was hanging to the three-foot steel railing. Hmm. They were posed with their legs crossed as if they just sat down to read a newspaper side by side. And they were dead. Posed like the creepy statues from their media room. And all signs pointed to they were murdered. You know how it's said that you only get justice if you're rich? These are billionaires that we're talking about. If anyone's going to get justice in our weird justice system, it's going to be billionaires, right? Maybe not. Not when it seems like almost everyone in their lives had motive to kill them. The Shermans were big pharma billionaires. They had four heirs, four children that were going to be instant billionaires the moment that they passed away. They had cousins who claimed it was their birthright to have a billion dollars of the Sherman fortune. A relative who admitted to fantasizing about killing Barry Sherman. He said he fantasized about killing his cousin and then kicking his head around. They had a sister-in-law who claimed she was promised $300 million from the couple. They have high-level executives at Apotex, their big pharma company, that were allegedly trading company secrets. An alleged best friend who reportedly received around $250 million in funds from the couple, but wanted more. The Shermans had over a hundred lawsuits against them at one point, government connections, and over a billion dollars worth of highly sought after drugs in their headquarters. So for this case, the easier question would be, who wouldn't want to kill the Shermans? And as of right now, there's a privately funded multi-million dollar private investigation in the works and one of the highest rewards in history at stake. $35 million if you know who killed the Sherman couple. What's going on? Like they, any, they say anybody can solve it. Here's the money. Like yes. how would you even be able to prove that? Like show evidence? Yes. And go to court? The crazy thing is the speculation out there is there is somebody who knew something mm-hmm. because this is not a one person job is the speculation. And there is life-changing money on the table. So maybe the only reason someone won't talk is because $35 million is not worth being dead. Mm, Or $35 is less than however much they got. Wow. We would like to thank today's sponsors who have made it possible for Rotten Mango to support Share Our Strength. 9 million children in America live in households that experience hunger, food insecurity, or lack access to affordable, nutritious diets. And they have been a leading nonprofit for 39 years. And since March of 2020, they have provided more than 2.8 billion meals and they're working hard to provide more. 
This episode's partnerships have also made it possible to support Rotten Mango's growing team of dedicated researchers, translators, while we focus on shedding light on stories from all over the world. We would also like to thank you guys for your continued support and your understanding as we work on our mission to be worthy advocates of these causes. So as always, full show notes are available at RottenMingoPodcast.com. But before we get started, I do need to preface this video by saying we are talking about an unsolved case today. There have been no convictions. There are no official list of suspects released by the authorities. Netizens have gone crazy over this case, speculating on who did what, who has motive, which side note, all of this that we're talking about, purely speculations. But the tricky thing about this case is, you know how other unsolved cases we've covered, there's usually like one or two parties where you're like, mm, okay, they do seem a little bit suspicious and I can see why the internet is wary of them. But with this case, there are truly so many possibilities on who could have motive and it's looking to be one of those cases where we may never really know the truth, which is crazy considering two billionaires were allegedly murdered. And one would imagine that kind of case gets solved quickly, but here we are. And another thing to note, this case seems incredibly secretive. Everyone connected to the billionaire seems very hesitant to talk to anyone. There is a lot going on, you'll see. And I want to say most of what we know today about this case is thanks to one journalist by the name of Kevin Donovan. He wrote a book on this case called The Billionaire Murders. And obviously, while the subject of the book is incredibly heavy, we're dealing with two deaths. I will say that he's very talented at not just writing, but also his job as an investigative journalist. He is the one that spoke to hundreds of people that were close to the family. I mean, I feel like at times he probably risked his career and his life, maybe even, to dig into this case. He's gone all the way to the Supreme Courts in Canada to get information on this case. He is an author, podcaster, docu-series producer. He's followed this case since the beginning. He's interviewed, re-interviewed family, friends, public sources, even the billionaire family's private investigators to just get the most comprehensive information that is now available to the public thanks to him. So all in all, check out Kevin Donovan. I'm going to link all of his stuff in the description. I mean, our team can really only aspire to be like 10% of his talent. And with that being said, another quick disclaimer. We're talking about a bunch of billionaires today. There are a lot of theories as to who did what in today's case. And I'm going to be presenting to you the main list of people that the internet suspects of being guilty but again keep in mind nobody has been charged or convicted of a crime anything that i say in today's episode is opinion and not a fact is theory not a fact internet speculations that have been compiled into an easy to consume video these are not facts these are theories and opinions also because this case is still ongoing anyone who may recognize this person if you guys are watching the video is asked to contact the investigative team which i will leave a list on how to contact them down in the description so with that being said let's get into it so many parts of this case feel like one of those whodunit knives out movies inside the mansion where billionaires barry and honey were found there were three other people the housekeeper the gardener and the real estate agent when the police arrive to the house, they separate the three immediately and they start asking them questions. How is it that three people are in the house moving around, cleaning, watering indoor plants, giving a tour and nobody saw the dead body sooner? The housekeeper told the police what happened since she arrived at the house. I arrived at around 8.25 a.m. Nelia, the housekeeper said she did notice a few things that seemed 
maybe out of place, but nothing very alarming. So first she noticed that Honey's Lexus was parked in her normal spot outside the house. She never parked it in the garage. There's snow on the car, no tire tracks, meaning she had been home at least overnight and she was likely still home because her car is in the driveway. Nelia turned off her car, steps out into the snowy driveway, and that's when she said it hit her. She's like, such an odd feeling. She said, I felt a black feeling when I approached the home. That's how she describes it. And she thought, maybe it's just the drabby weather. It is 22 degrees, gloomy and snowing. She rushes to the front door where she sees the Toronto Star. This is Barry Sherman's favorite newspaper. And usually by the time that Nelia gets to the house, he's already taken it in from the front door and reading it while he's like drinking a cup of coffee. What time is that? Do you know? 8.25 a.m. Okay. But it's Friday morning. Maybe the couple had a long night. So she said, I picked up the newspaper, came in through the service door on the side of the house. The front door is exclusively for deliveries of the morning paper and, you know, the prime minister. As Nelia is about to slip inside, she spots another car pull up. Megan Young, the personal trainer for the couple. She thought, okay, I might as well wait for her because what's the point of going in? And then I got to open the side door again for her. So she stands in the snow. Megan's kind of rushing towards her. She unlocks the door with the key, steps inside, and the alarm system is off. Because usually it starts beeping. You got to enter a code or disarm the home, right? Mm -hmm. It's off. It's weird because the billionaires, they don't have any CCTV in the house. Yeah, they were like really against it for some reason. I wonder if they thought people could hack into it or listen, mm -hmm. but they only had like alarm system for windows breaking or doors opening, things like that, I imagine. Mm -hmm. And they usually kept it on when they're asleep or when they're home. It's always on even if they're not asleep. Mm, okay, so he didn't come out to grab the newspaper, mm -hmm. meaning he hasn't leave the house at all yes so likely the house is still armed yes but it's not armed not armed it's weird it's mm. very weird she said that she had been working with the shermans for about three years and rarely ever saw the alarm off when the couple were inside the house mm. and the police are like okay then what else happened well so Nelia had let in the furnace company worker. The family had been using this specific furnace tech company for years because the mansion had four furnaces. So Nelia lets him in and he goes into the basement with his tools to do some work. Wait, so how many people's in here now? There's a bunch of people in there, but they're all going to leave. Oh, but mm -hmm. okay. So furnace person is one person or one okay so he's in the basement just in like one of those utility rooms so it's like those unmade basement rooms where all the security functions are and stuff like that so he's in there working on the furnace nelia then goes to try and find her bosses because you know their personal trainer megan is there for a session she goes upstairs pokes her head into honey's room honey's not there and her bed is made strange she goes into Barry's room. So yeah, they sleep separately because Barry is known to have insomnia. And when he finally falls asleep, they say he sounds like a bear in hibernation. She pokes her head into Barry's room. He's not there and his bed is made. Strange. Nelia thought, okay, maybe they left early. She checked Honey's bathroom and her sink is dry. I mean, all of this is strange, but it's not as alarming as you would think. The Shermans, like most wealthy families in Toronto, they have winter homes where they have condos in warm areas like Florida or Southern California to escape once the winter gets unbearable. Maybe they left without telling her. Nelia told Megan that the Shermans weren't home and she didn't know when they would be back. Megan's like, okay, let me just like stick around and wait a little bit just in case. But eventually both Megan, the personal trainer and the furnace worker, they leave. The housekeeper did notice something that was odd. She was cleaning the main floor and in the guest bathroom, the powder room. So it's like a half bath, not even a shower in there. Honey's iPhone was on the floor. 
So she picked it up and just put it on the vanity near the sink. Wait, what room? One more time? It's like the powder room. Like a half bath. On the main floor. Mm -hmm. So it's like when you have guests over, you'd probably direct them to that bathroom. Right. Okay. Hmm. It's weird. So she puts it on the vanity and goes back to mopping. And it wasn't until around 10.45 a.m. that the house starts getting a bit busier. Real estate agent Zhao and his two Chinese clients show up. They're led in by the Sherman couple's realtor, Elise Stern. Elise and Nelia have a quick chat where, you know, Nelia's like, I don't, I don't think they're home right now. And Elise is like, okay, well, can you help me turn on all the lights? And Elise felt kind of annoyed, I'm sure. Maybe it was a bit of an inconvenience. The Sherman couple were supposed to give Elise a home inspection report, and now she didn't have it since they weren't home. She decides to kind of look around the house for it, but it's not there. No matter. She shows the Chinese couple the upstairs, the main floor, the kitchen, all the appliances, and this is the guest powder room. Elise's eye caught on something sparkly on the vanity near the sink, and she thought it was odd. She said, a cell phone. I didn't know it was Honey's at the time. It was where the sink was, and it was just weird because I didn't know who it was, and it was all glitzy and sparkly, and I remember thinking, whose cell phone is this? Again, not alarming. So Elise goes on the rest of her tour, shows them the upstairs, the main floor, even the hobby room with the creepy statues. Again, at that moment, nothing felt sinister, but Elise remembers that window being open in the hobby room. She said it was open about six inches, and she thought maybe because that hobby room had just been repainted, they're airing out the paint smell. Hmm. It's weird. Yeah. Hmm. She didn't think twice about it, and when they went into the pool room, they saw another two statues sitting next to the pool. The other realtor and potential buyers, they just believed it was more weird art. Elise knew that there was no art in the pool room. It was odd. So she quickly gets them upstairs, ends the tour early, and the clients are like, well, can we at least like walk around the outside of the property to see what the backyard looks like? And she's like, yeah, 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 go do your thing. She rushes to the housekeeper, and at this point, the gardener had just arrived and was already watering some houseplants on the main floor, mainly orchids. The Shermans loved orchids. And Elise asks the housekeeper, can you go downstairs to check on the Shermans? They're in the pool room, which is a very normal, easy request, right? Mm -hmm. But Nelia immediately starts freaking out, which is weird. And it just made everyone anxious because she just kept screaming, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And she explained that she had a black feeling when she walked into the house. She had a black feeling. Also, side note, I think that Nelia's anxiety comes from the fact that so many weird things had mm-hmm. happened earlier in the morning and she knew that Honey never willingly went into the basement because her knees were bad. Honey almost never went to the basement. Yeah, like the whole iPhone on the floor and... Yeah. That's hot. So Claire, the gardener, who just recently arrived, she's like, you know what? I'll go downstairs and check. It said that she grabbed a butter knife from the kitchen, ran downstairs, navigates through this large basement, through the hallway. The indoor pool is in like the most secluded part of the basement. Because, you know, basements usually have like a media room and there's like the common areas. This is like on the deepest corner. She walks in and walks the length of the pool, 45 feet to the deepest corner. And she walks straight up to the figures. It was the Shermans. Claire runs back upstairs where Elise and Nellie are anxiously waiting for her. And she announces, they're dead. They were dead. And they had been dead for a while. Elise, the realtor, made a quick call to Honey's sister, Mary. And then she called the police at 11.43 a.m. She said, somebody killed my clients. I'm going to give you a breakdown on how their bodies were found. And I'm going to try and be as descriptive as possible in case you're listening to the audio version. But for the video version on YouTube, there is a drawing that depicts the scene. I don't know if it's going to get past YouTube, but we'll see. The Shermans are half laying, half sitting. 
side by side next to the pool. So you know how you sit and you sit crisscross applesauce, mm -hmm. but their legs are kind of extended, which is not really a comfortable way to sit without anything supporting your back. Yeah. It's like an L shape, right? That's how they're sitting. And they're both facing away from their pool. Their legs are outstretched, not bent. And around their necks were leather belts that were tied to the three foot tall handrail above their heads. That is the only reason they're half sitting. If their necks were not tied, their bodies would have just been laying flat on the ground. Mm. What is the tie by? Leather belts. Their lips were purple. There was dried blood on Honey's face, whereas Barry's face did not show any injuries. He was still wearing his glasses and they didn't even look disturbed. So they were sitting very nicely on his face, which a lot of witnesses said he looked very peaceful. One of Barry's legs was crossed over the other, just like the statue in their media room. But also it's just very odd that he looked so relaxed, like he's about to read his morning paper. Barry and Honey's jackets were pulled halfway down. So it's resting on their elbows. So imagine you put on your jacket and then pull it halfway off. Now your arms are kind of restricted. Hmm. So it would have likely made it harder for him to use his arms because of the way that his jacket was positioned. And here's what is quickly gathered from a scene like this, that these two most likely died from hanging. Hanging is typically associated as a choice that one makes for themselves, right? And not typically considered a homicide. But it's very hard to differentiate between hanging and strangulation. Because mm. they're ligature marks around the neck. That's how you pass, right? But let's be real. The way that their bodies are found, the way that they're positioned, it just feels off. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel like they made that choice. And what makes the whole thing even fishier is that the police will soon rule out foul play, not officially, but basically, okay? They stated that they had no suspects that they're going to be going after, which to a lot of journalists sounds like you're ruling out foul play. It's interpreted by the media as the police either believe that this is a double exit and they both decided, let's exit life together. Or one of them killed one and then exited. Mm. Even though they didn't state it outright, their verbiage implied that's what they're thinking. Because if it's a double homicide, they'd be like, we're looking for suspects. Because there's no way that this is accidental. This is not medical or a natural death. And if they're not looking for suspects at this, that must mean that they don't think any outside parties are involved. The Sherman couple's four adult children were not happy with this theory. I mean, it was all over front page news everywhere, not just in Canada, but internationally in like the business spheres, especially like the healthcare industries. The idea was their father killed his wife and then himself. So the four adult kids, they immediately release a press release that read, our parents shared an enthusiasm for life and commitment to their family and community. And it's totally inconsistent with the rumors regrettably circulating in the media as to the circumstances surrounding their deaths. We are shocked and we think it's irresponsible that police sources have reportedly advised the media of this theory, which neither their family, their friends, nor their colleagues believe to be true. So they're basically saying, that's not our parents. That's not something our dad would do. The now billionaire children sued the press and the police, including the Toronto Star, which is Barry's morning paper of choice. Because the double exit theory just didn't make sense for most people. It just didn't make sense that the couple would be like, okay, let's go together. And this is how we're going to do it. I, I mean, I couldn't find reputable statistics on how many people choose to exit their lives by sitting down like this and using that type of method. But one would imagine it's pretty low. And to do it as a couple, it just doesn't make sense. But I mean, I guess nothing in life is impossible, but it just doesn't seem plausible 
So initially, people start agreeing with the police theory. They're running with this murder-suicide theory, especially after the initial autopsy findings were released. The forensics examined the bodies to zero in first on the possible time of death. Because they're like, we know that they were found Friday morning, but it seems like they had been there for a while. Mm-hmm. To simply put it, you can use two things to narrow down the time. Well, you can use a lot, but liver mortis and rigor mortis. So liver mortis refers to the process of when your heart stops pumping blood and different parts of the body will start showing skin discoloration. Because when you think about it, the gravitational settling of the blood is different depending on what position you're in and how quickly that blood starts settling can kind of zone in on some time. So this typically starts showing within 30 minutes to two hours after death. And it becomes even more pronounced near like the four, six hour mark. Rigor mortis, I'm sure is a bit a term that's more familiar to us, is the stiffening of the muscles after death. So it happens relatively quickly after death. And then it slowly weans away after 24, 84 hours. Typically, the Sherman bodies were limp when they were discovered, meaning enough time had passed for rigor mortis to set in and then wean away. Wow. So based on that and liver mortis, the forensic experts estimated the couple had been dead for at least 30 hours, meaning their time of death was narrowed down to Wednesday night. So they were found Friday morning, Wednesday night around 9 to 11 p.m. There were no fatal or illicit drugs in the couple's systems at the time of death. There were also no signs of forced entry in the home. It didn't appear that anything was taken or stolen or that someone had been looking for something. It wasn't ransacked. So if they were the only ones there, what happened? Going off the fact that Honey had injuries to her face while Barry did not, the theory was Barry killed Honey and then exited. And the biggest thing the initial autopsy leaned into was the fact that neither of their hyoid bones were broken. So the hyoid bone is a horseshoe-shaped bone between the chin and the thyroid. It's above the Adam's apple. So originally, pathologists thought that if the hyoid bone was broken, that meant that there was a sudden harsh force that was applied to the neck. It's going to get really technical. Statistically, it was argued, and I don't know if this is true, but this was kind of argued with the initial autopsy, that if one were to be suspended from the ceiling, but use a chair to do it, Mm -hmm. the hyoid bone might be intact because there's not enough like instant forceful like boom pressure whereas if you think about like capital punishment where they push you off a platform Mm -hmm. it's instant there's this drop and it it, it's almost like snapping Mm -hmm. their bones were not broken and in a lot of violent strangulation homicide cases you'll see that that bone is broken but both the shermans that bone was intact so the original pathologist felt like oh that's more in line with barry killing his wife and then exiting But now, many pathologists argue that there is correlation between the hyoid bone and the manner of death, but there's no causation, meaning that there are too many other factors at play. Like if a softer ligature is wrapped around the neck, the hyoid bone is less likely to fracture, even if it's homicide. And age is a huge factor. And there are a lot of major arguments to the theory about all of this. Barry was clearly not healthy. He had a poor diet. He hated exercise. Meanwhile, even according to the initial autopsy and the original pathologist, Honey was strong. 
She was around the same weight as Barry and had considerable bone density, which meant that she was likely very strong. Also, Barry, according to the autopsies, had pockets of fat all over his body, whereas Honey's muscles were significantly more toned than his. And reportedly, close friends said that Honey was so tough, there was just no way that Barry would kill her. They said if anyone was going to kill the other in this couple, in this relationship, and move the body, it would have been Honey, not Barry Sherman. So how did he overpower his wife and then exit his life by choosing to be suspended by a very low railing where he could easily just get up if his survival instincts kicked in? It didn't make any sense. There were also other ligature marks found on their wrist, which indicated that they were both tied up at one point. Why would Barry tie up his own wrist if he was the culprit? But the most puzzling question of all, Barry pharmaceutical giant owner of a drug empire if he's going to kill his wife and then himself would he not have found a simpler easier more painless way he's got access to a lot of drugs right barry sherman's will had one main line and it read i will leave everything to my wife honey I mean, of course, there are other details how the estate will be handled, but Honey is also dead. Honey did not have a will, so their collective estate was divided equally into four parts and distributed to their four children, with each child receiving about $3.2 billion. Wow. It's hard to say that someone needs to act a certain way when they're grieving, you know? And me being like a nervous laugher, I completely like stand by this statement, right? There's no playbook for grief or shock or how to process it. But some of those that were very close to the Shermans, they said that some family members responded interestingly. Yeah. Once news broke of the Shermans' suspicious deaths, their actions definitely raised a few eyebrows. So the Sherman parents, they're now deceased, and all four of their children have become billionaires. And naturally, some people started suspecting, did they have something to do with it? Because there's a lot of money to be gained. And it seemed like the four Sherman kids, they had very little in common with each other, but also with their dad, other than their net worths. None of them wanted or were capable of taking over Apotex, the pharmaceutical company. Lauren, the oldest, is a yoga teacher and a mental health counselor. How old are they? They're in their late 20s to like throughout their 30s. They're adults, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Alexandra is another daughter, and it feels like she's probably the most like her dad. She hates flaunting money. She seems heavily involved in various charitable causes, and she's very interesting. She's the one kid that just really wanted to do her own thing. I feel like you kind of like know that kid in families. She became a registered nurse, got married, started her own family. And side note, she was a nurse for a shelter that helped the unhoused. She spent a lot of time working with indigenous people in North Canada, and she just really wanted to make her own path for herself. And now with the Shermans gone, it seems like she is the most involved in continuing their charity work. It's said that a lot of the people and like all the relatives, they looked at her as the rock to lean on when the couple had passed. I don't know any of these people personally, but it seems like the Sherman parents were also the closest to Alexandra. The whole reason that the Shermans were putting up their house for sale was because they bought a plot of land down the street from Alex and her family, and they were working on constructing a new $30 million mansion to be closer to Alex and her children. Wow. It was going to be a 16,000 square foot house with a retractable roof, whatever that means. Like the whole roof, a portion of the roof, I don't know. And the day that their bodies were found, they were supposed to come over to Alex's house for dinner. 
Then you have Kaylin. She is the youngest, and she was in the process of planning a wedding that her parents were funding. She was getting married to an electrician named Jared that she had met online, which Jared was also now working at Apotex, thanks to Kaylin. It's rumored that the Shermans were getting sick and tired of funding Kaylin's insane credit card bills every month. And they were rumored to have been slowly cutting her off. Not cutting her off per se, but like funding her less and less. For example, and this is an alleged incident, but right before they passed, Kaylin's car had broken down and she asked her parents, hey, can I buy a new car? You know, normal people get it fixed, but billionaires, they just buy new cars. And normally the Shermans are like, yeah, buy a new car. But this time, allegedly, they told her, why don't you get it fixed like everyone else instead? So this is the part that raises eyebrows. The rumor is, soon after the Sherman's death, Kaylin was heard going around talking about how her parents had told her right before they died to go buy a new car. So she did. Allegedly, she bought a new car the week that her parents passed. And she reportedly told a few people, that is like what dad wanted me to do. Which I guess some would consider strange. Lauren, the eldest, also allegedly stated, well, if it had to happen, it's not the worst time in their lives to be murdered. They had finally gotten to know my son, at least. Again, these are just, you know, kind of hearsay. People around the family are reporting that they heard the kids say this, which is just kind of weird, right? Which, if true, I think is interesting. But nothing was as strange as some of the reports coming out about Jonathan. Allegedly, he was very interesting at the time of his parents' death. The whole family had gotten together afterwards, all the relatives, and people reported that he was leaning on anyone he could find nearby. He was hugging people, crying, throwing himself on the ground, screaming, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. He was drinking scotch, crying on people's shoulders. And then later in the night, others recall him being completely composed. So I guess that raised some eyebrows from people. Mary was also a family member that raised a lot of eyebrows. Mary is Honey's sister, and when she heard the news, she immediately boarded a private jet from Florida, where her winter condo is. And just to give you some context, Mary is not independently wealthy, so she is financially dependent on her sister, Honey, and her brother-in-law, Barry Sherman. She claims that she did exchange work for all of these funds, but I'm sure it was probably not the market rate, you know? She's not independently wealthy. She flew on a private jet back to Toronto and allegedly went around telling anyone who would listen that Honey, her sister, had promised her $300 million right before she died. She also downed a ton of drinks and snapped at Jack K, which is one of Barry's first business partners in Apotex and would later be the CEO of Apotex briefly, and just straight up screamed at him along with Honey's best friend since childhood, just like making a scene. But really... None of that even would compare to Carrie Winter. Carrie Winter is Barry Sherman's cousin, and he stated that the couple deserved to die. And honestly, he stated it should have been worse. Their heads should have been twisted off and kicked around like soccer balls. Carrie said Barry Sherman was a curse. Anyone who associated with him would end up with bad luck. So why does Carrie hate Barry Sherman, his own cousin, so much? Mm -hmm. That is a billion-dollar question, literally. Carrie sued his cousin Barry Sherman for a billion dollars. Carrie and his brothers were allegedly referred to in the family as the Winter Orphans because their parents, Lou and Beverly Winter, passed when they were young. And the Winter Orphans consisted of adopted son Tim and then three biological sons, Jeffrey, Carrie, and Dana. So Tim, Jeffrey, Carrie, Dana, they all hate Barry. The last three sons hate Barry the most. 
Tim kind of does his own thing because he's a chef. But the last three sons, they felt like they were all owed a piece of the pharmaceutical company Apotex. And Barry Sherman had screwed them over. Did they explain why? How? Oh, yeah. We're going to get into it. So Apotex is the largest pharmaceutical company in Canada and the seventh largest globally. It's founded and led by Barry Sherman. Net worths, I don't think are really ever accurate, but it's suggested that at least Barry Sherman was worth like seven billion and probably more. Apotex is said to sell over 300 generic drugs in more than 115 countries. They fill over 89 million prescriptions a year in Canada alone. They manufacture over 25 billion doses of drugs a year. And annual global revenues are estimated to be around $1.6 billion. And that's just half of where Barry Sherman wanted to take Apotex. His company goal that he's on track for before he passed was to reach 50 billion doses. So you're looking at if you double that, if we just make it simple math, maybe even potentially $3 billion in revenue a year. Their HQ is in Toronto and globally they employ around 11,000 employees. And side note about the headquarters, it feels more like the Federal Reserve. It's got higher security than Area 51 in the U.S. Apotex headquarters has these concrete and steel walls that are about two feet thick and locked behind this giant vault at any given time. They've got nearly $1.3 billion worth of active pharmaceutical ingredients waiting to be made into coveted painkillers. Entry into the vault is granted by a fingerprint lock that only two people can open. We have no idea who these two people are. And by the way, the door itself into the vault weighs a thousand pounds. Yeah. Side note, Sherman did step down as CEO in 2014, but he's heavily involved. He's still the chairman. He really was a tank in the pharmaceutical industry, Barry Sherman. People said that he's like a real life human scanner. He's got a photographic memory. And if you give him like a hundred page intense legal document, high stakes, incredible, all the legal jargon, hundred pages, he would sit there and he would have it so close to his face, like a human scanner, like a robot scanning each page, taking zero notes, put it down. And he'd say, looks good, but there's a typo on page 42. And sure enough, there was. He also had some sheer confidence backing him up. One time his business partner asked him, why do you think we're going to be successful when others have failed? And he responded, because I'm smarter than everyone else. Damn. But just because your cousin creates a billion dollar company, does that make you entitled to a piece? This one is tricky. It's complicated. And it goes all the way back to Barry's childhood. Before being a billionaire, it was just Butterball Barry. That was his nickname. In school, he was described as a butterball and sluggish. He was very lethargic. He seemed perpetually sleepy. He was physically awkward, introverted, unless you talk about God. Yeah. Over the years, if someone said, thank God, in front of Barry, he would say, there is no God. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Which is fascinating because honey is very religious. Yeah. He also says that it's incomprehensible that intelligent people believe in, quote, preposterous mythologies. Those are his words, not mine. So growing up, Barry didn't seem that great at studying, like at all. But later in high school, his competitive nature just kicks into high gear. And he knew that he was really good at the math and sciences. People even called him a genius. His closest friend said that guy had insomnia even when he was a kid. Like not even as an adult, he developed insomnia. And it's probably because his mind never shuts off. But there was definitely some trauma early on. So one day, Barry's dad owned like a small zipper manufacturing company, like where they manufacture zippers. And his dad went to work, never came back home. He had a heart attack and died. 
Barry learned that his dad had been hiding a congenital heart defect and did not tell anyone in the family. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody. And now Barry's mom had to raise all of her kids on her own, and it was tough. Barry started college at 16 at the University of Toronto, then went on to get a PhD in astrophysics from MIT. At MIT, he had a 5.0 GPA, and his whole life goal was to work at NASA one day. I mean, just to give you an idea of how smart this guy was, his thesis at MIT was called Precision Gravity Gradient Satellite Altitude Control. I don't even know what that means. And he eventually received a patent from the US government for his thesis. During the summers, he didn't want to just sit around, so he looked for anything that could gain experience. And it was kind of perfect because his uncle, Uncle Lou Winter, Carrie's father, owned a generic drug company called Empire Labs. Empire Labs at the time focused on running pregnancy tests. So I'm gonna like take it way back then. So you know how these days you can pee on a stick at home and it tells you if you're pregnant or not, right? Mm -hmm. Back in the day, they didn't have that. So you would have to go to a doctor's office, pee in a cup, they would send it to a diagnostics lab like Empire Labs, and then they would run the test through these crazy machines and tech that they have, then tell the doctor the results. So he was basically a urine delivery boy, if I'm putting it nicely. He would just deliver urine, but he quickly ranks up. Even under Uncle Lou, who is known to be a crazy temperamental boss, he would get red in the face and scream at anyone that did something that he didn't like or didn't think that he was smart enough. So Barry is getting very fascinated working under Uncle Lou. He's like, ooh, the pharmaceutical industry, he's learning a lot. And he's probably learning a lot about how much money there is to be made. And then tragedy struck again. So Beverly is Uncle Lou's wife. This is Barry's maternal aunt. She's diagnosed with leukemia and things are not looking great. So when Barry gets an urgent call from his sister about the winters, he's assuming, oh my God, Aunt Beverly died. But his sister's like, no, it's Uncle Lou. Uncle Lou passed away. He had an aneurysm in his brain that burst. He was dead. And then a few months later, Beverly passed away. And now the winters, the four cousins, they were orphans technically. All they had were Empire Labs, but they were young. Like I think the oldest was seven years old at the time. Barry was 23. So the four winter orphans, and that's how the family referred to them, allegedly, not me. They were adopted by a local couple that happened to be doctors. But Carrie would claim that these adoptive parents were very abusive. And the whole point of Empire Labs was a board of trustees would take over. They would grow it, grow it, grow it, maintain it until the, the winter kids were of age. And then either it would be sold and they would get the profits or the winter kids would take over once they were age. Because, you know, what can a seven-year-old do? Yeah, yeah. And they, they don't want to just shut down Empire Labs, right? It was handed over to a board who appointed a new CEO. And Barry saw this and they saw them destroying his uncle's company. So Barry and his best friend, Joel, they take loans from their parents, basically their parents' life savings, beg the board to let them buy Empire Labs before they run it to the ground. And it took two years for them to convince Empire Labs, the board, to mm -hmm. be sold to Barry and Joel. Okay. So they finally own Empire Labs and they know that a big portion of this company is owned by the Winter Kids. So the Winter Kids legally own 20% of Empire Labs and then Barry owns the rest. Okay, so four kids owns 20 and... 5% okay. each. Okay. So the first day in office, Barry told his best friend from high school, his business partner, we're going to be millionaires. The next day, after looking over all the company documents, he looked at his best friend and said, we're going to be bankrupt. Barry and his best friend ran Empire Labs for about five years. They were the only reason the company was profitable and efficient. And after five years, they sold the company for $2 million, probably with inflation, let's say closer to like five, 10, right? 
which later it's argued that without Barry, Empire Labs would be nothing. It wouldn't even have been sold because the CEO before Barry was losing his marbles. Mm-hmm. And a portion of the proceeds would go to the Winter Kids because they own a portion of Empire Labs. Mm-hmm. So they sell the company and they launch Apotex, which is a combination of the word apothecary, which refers to pharmacies back in the day, and then the suffix tex, which just sounds cool, so Apotex. But the Winter Brothers, they were young when their parents died. They didn't really understand what was going on. All they knew was that when they were young, they were rich. They had a Rolls Royce. They had a yacht in their family. Then their parents died. There was a profitable business. When they got older, Empire Labs was gone. Shut down, sold, then shut down, and in in its place was a new pharmaceutical giant called Apotex. Okay. And Barry informed them, no, you don't own a portion of Apotex because I started Apotex with my other buddies. It's got no relation to Empire Labs. But the Winter Brothers felt like without Empire Labs, would you even have Apotex? And did you start Apotex just so we wouldn't have a portion of Empire Labs? I'm sure the theory is you could have grown Empire Labs to be the size of Apotex. But instead, you strategically sold it and then restarted Apotex. I mean, I, I don't see why they can't do that, right? Yes. So this one is more of legally is one thing, morally, ethically right. is another thing, right? Right, right, right. So they're saying how much of Empire Labs was initially brought into Apotex. And I will say, though, that Barry was quite generous with his four cousins. If they wanted to buy a house or a car or start a business, he would give them the money. In total, he spent over $15 million on the cousins and never asked for a single penny back. Whoa. He even tried to give one of them a job, Dana. He hired Dana to work for Apotex. But within a month, Dana, the cousin, was caught selling drugs to other employees at Apotex. Which, okay, just think about it for a second. For a pharmaceutical company and Dana being related to the founder and chairman, the implications if Barry did not fire him, probably worse than it sounds. Mm-hmm. That I mean, the world would have ripped Barry Sherman apart. Yeah. 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 Recovering your family drug dealing and, and dealing drugs when yeah. you're you own a pharmaceutical business it would have been really really bad so barry fires him from apotex but still hires him in a different business barry owned a few resorts and he's like go work at a resort dana ends up sleeping with a bunch of the female customers that come to the resort and he was promptly let go from there as well Barry also funded his rehab programs, which costed about $20,000 each time that he went. And after all of this, Barry still funded a lot of their business ideas, even against the wishes of his own wife. Honey is like, you gotta let them go. There was this weird tension between all of them. Like the cousins would keep asking Barry for money, but they also hated him. And it's fascinating because growing up, the family had the opposite dynamic. Mm. The Winter brothers grew up super privileged. They had a yacht and a Rolls Royce. Barry was being raised by a single mom because his dad passed. But once the cousins were grown up, Barry was a billionaire. And the Winter cousins, with the exception of Tim, the oldest, they're constantly having to beg and pander to Barry. Yeah. And I also wonder what level is that? Like, there's no... Probably the, the, what is it? The parenting is not there. Yeah. A seven-year-old, five-year-old, like, yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure it's hard for them to not think, because without Uncle Lou, our dad, Barry wouldn't be here where he is today, right? And then the Winter Cousins found their father's original will. And it clearly stated that each child, once they reached the age of 20, were entitled to 5% of Empire Labs. The combined shares of the four brothers would be 20%. And since they believed Apotex was in place of Empire Labs, in their minds, they felt that they owned 20% of Apotex. 
which would have the estimated value of $10 billion. Jeez. When Carrie confronted Barry with this, Barry just dismissed him, stating, Empire Labs no longer exists, and the current one, Apotex, was built entirely on my own, separately. Carrie sued Barry. The legal battle ensued for 10 years. Ultimately, the judge said that Carrie's request for $1 billion in shares was, quote, wishful thinking and beyond fanciful. Yeah. To make matters worse, not only did Carrie and the brothers not get a single penny, the judge ordered the Winter brothers to repay Barry the $15 million that he had assisted them with over the years. Wow. And they have to pay $30,000 in legal fees. So this legal battle, it turned Carrie Winter basically into a supervillain arch enemy of Barry Sherman. He said when he heard about the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman, he started dancing around his house and screamed, today is a good day. I mean, what is that going to do for him? Like, yeah, I mean, wow. Later, when accused of murdering his cousin, Carrie said, no, the way I was going to do it wouldn't have been with belts. It was going to be in the Apotex parking lot. That was my vision. Barry would come out of the building of Apotex and I'd be hiding behind a car and I would just decapitate him. I wanted to roll his head down the parking lot and then I would just sit there waiting for the police. He despised Barry and he said, Barry cared about money, making lots of it and not caring about who he destroyed, who he stepped on or who he fucked over, like me and my brothers. But to a lot of people, Barry's friends, they said, that's not the Barry we know. Barry's actually quite a benevolent billionaire. That's what they said. And I think, yeah, it can be argued that billionaires can't truly be benevolent, but I guess they're using it in comparison to other billionaires in the circle, right? Maybe they're a little bit more charitable. Barry Sherman was known for dropping millions of dollars on random charities, schools, hospitals, and even individual people. He would buy random employees' houses. The couple had multiple buildings named in their honor for their generous donations, and they were known for their philanthropic ways. And again, a lot of people would argue that they only donated because they had to, socially and financially, to get those tax incentives. So we don't really know what the real motive of them wanting to donate is, but people do remember them as philanthropists. They were one of the biggest donors to charitable causes in Canadian history, giving away an estimated figure in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It's unclear how much they donated because a lot of the times they only donated under the condition that it be fully anonymous. The funeral of the billionaire couple would have around 7,500 people in attendance. And this is not an open funeral. So sometimes with community members or victims of crimes, there will be open funerals for the community to come together and show support, right? The Sherman funeral was closed, meaning only the people invited were allowed in. And there were 7,500 people invited because the sheer amount of people, I mean, it was held in a massive space that looked like an airport hangar. There were six jumbotrons, like the giant screens projectors so that the audience could see what's going on on stage. Wow. Yeah, to hear the family members give speeches. Security was top-notch. I mean, it had to be. The Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the Mayor of Toronto, they were all in attendance. It was comparable to a state funeral. The private security was hired by the family, and they controlled who got in, who left the funeral, and they were all given a single task by one of the kids, the Sherman kids. It wasn't keeping the Prime Minister safe. I'm sure he had his own security. It was a picture. Before the funeral, Jonathan Sherman, the Sherman's only son, handed the security team a picture of a funny-looking man, and they were to memorize every little detail on this man's face and ensure that he did not, under any circumstances, get into the funeral. Every single one of the 7,500 faces of the people in attendance were thoroughly checked by security, and the man in the picture was Frank D'Angelo, Barry Sherman's best friend and one of netizens' suspects for the Sherman murders. Best friend. Best friend. 
the consensus online and a lot of people who knew Barry and Honey Sherman is that they were both murdered. And personally, this theory is the only one that makes sense, even in my head. The idea that they both did this to themselves willingly doesn't make sense. Or the idea that Barry did this to his wife and then himself also doesn't make sense. The Sherman kids funded a second private autopsy and there were a lot of new findings. Everyone agreed that the medical cause of death was strangulation, right? But there were very, very fine marks around the couple's neck. And it was inconsistent with the width of the belts. So it's believed that the real murder weapon was likely not the belts, but a more thin, more flexible rope. But more importantly, based on the height, weight, and the length of the belt around Barry's neck, and the gravity that would be needed for it to actually strangle him, because he's not using all of his body weight, because remember, he's sitting. Mm-hmm. It just didn't make sense. Mm, I see. The belt is too thick for only that amount of weight to, to pull okay yes wow. they said logically scientifically it is impossible for him to strangle himself to death in that seated position with that belt and remember the initial autopsy findings reported that there were weird markings around both their wrists if barry had done this and he had tied both of their wrists for whatever reason wouldn't those be readily available left somewhere on the premises it looked like it had been done with zip ties but there were no zip ties or any sort of bindings that were found in the pool room or really anywhere in the house and all four wrists had markings. That didn't make sense. The second autopsy team ruled out all other possibilities and stated that the only option physically and forensically possible was double homicide. This is what most people believe happened that night of the murders. Wednesday, December 13, after a meeting with architects in the Apotex office, Honey came home first. And a likely scenario is that she was killed first. We don't know if the killers were let in by her or they found an open entrance because the window and there was also a side door that was unlocked, right? But Honey likely ran into the powder room on the main floor to get away from the killer or the killers, tried to call 911. Because remember, her phone was found on the floor of the guest bathroom that the housekeeper said she never used that bathroom. See, that's what I'm saying. Yes. That's such a odd spot. And then also, if you're using that bathroom and you drop your phone, who just is like, okay, I'm going to walk yeah. away now. Yeah. It's very strange, right? So maybe she tried to get away, tried to call 911, but they got to her. She was likely tied up and then strangled to death. And the injuries to her face probably came from the killers dragging her down the stairs to the basement pool. It had to have happened immediately after death her injuries to her face. They said there's no bruising. Uh, but you had to be you have to be alive for bruises to form. Right, okay. Yes. And it's widely believed that she was killed somewhere else in the house and then dropped downstairs. And according to the housekeeper, Honey never went into the basement, remember? Because she had bad legs. Mm-hmm. Now, after killing Honey, they waited for Barry, who came in through the garage door in the basement. He was likely ambushed holding a stack of papers, his driving gloves, and his Blackberry. They probably tied him up and killed him and then dragged him into the pool room. The part that intrigues a lot of people, though, is why were their hands tied, though? Was it just part of the process of killing them and making sure that they're subdued and they don't escape? Or is it because they're trying to extract something from them before they're killed? Some sort of information? But what would that be? from our online research and not having known her personally, Honey seems like a very complicated individual. I'm going to say both of them do. And I think a lot of it has to do with their billionaire status. 
So Honey's birth name was Anna, but she changed it to Honey in high school because she said she wanted to live a life as sweet as Honey. And she was always a very bold person. Like she was late to practically everything. It didn't matter if she's like two hours late. She would do this morning ritual in the same speed every day. Like her body just did not move faster. She would make herself a cup of tea, dunk chocolate turtles. They're like the ones with the nuts and the caramel. She would dunk it into the tea to soften it up and eat exactly two of those and then drink her tea and then go get ready. Yeah. She loved going out. She loved socializing. Never really took herself or anyone too seriously. Her best friend remembered when they were young, they were on a date with two guys, two American guys. And like, this is so embarrassing. But these Americans were asking some gnarly questions. Okay, they're like, you're from Canada. Do you guys live in like ice houses up there? Honey rolled her eyes. She's annoyed. And she starts speaking in French to her friend. French is Canada's second official language. So the Americans just assumed, oh, these Canadians don't know English. They're like part of the French speaking community, right? But the truth is, Honey barely knew French. She's just making up words to get these guys to fork off, basically, when she found out that they're idiots. And a lot of people said Honey was just a blast to be around. She was introduced to Barry Sherman through a friend of hers and the two, they hit it off. They got married and I imagine that they had this dream of having a big family, but things didn't really go according to plan. They tried multiple times to get pregnant. Honey suffered multiple miscarriages. They finally gave birth to Lauren, their first child. She would actually be the only biological child of both Honey and Barry. The couple tried to have more children, but it wasn't working. And so they used surrogacy for the remaining three. But at the time, surrogacy was not that popular in Canada. And it was basically in its first stages. So what they did was they would get surrogates from the U.S. And they would just implant Barry's sperm into the surrogate. So it's the surrogate's egg. And they had three different surrogates. So all four kids have the same dad. Yeah. And all four kids have different... Well, I don't want to say moms, but you get it. Like eggs. DNA. Yes. Maternal DNA. Does that make sense? Yeah, you get what I'm saying. And I'm only emphasizing this part, not because I think that this makes them less of Honey's children or less Sherman, but there are speculations by netizens that this affected the family dynamic. So Lauren, the first child, has both Honey and Barry's DNA. And the next three Sherman kids, they only have Barry's DNA. And some people think that Honey maybe didn't have as strong of a maternal side. A lot of netizens suspect that she just didn't seem as close to her children, which I don't know where we're getting this speculation because the family is awfully private. But for example, Honey's parents were Holocaust survivors. But according to Honey's sister, Honey called her own children Nazis. Which I don't think that Honey would do lightly if her parents had survived the Holocaust. Wait, all four? It seems like all four. Yeah. And this is going to be a point of contention later, but it's been reported that Honey told her friends that her children, quote, controlled her. And that in the family pecking order, Honey was at the bottom. Yeah. And this next part, at first I thought it was cool because I was like, oh, that's kind of unexpected. That's a cool billionaire. So frugal. But the deeper we went researching into this, I was like, oh, Ooh, that's interesting. So let me explain. You know those like thin plastic bags that you get at a grocery store? Mm-hmm. Honey would save all of them, like the rest of us, right? She's a billionaire. She would wad them up into balls, throw them into her purse, and then she would go to the golf course with her girlfriends. She would whip them out and start collecting abandoned balls on the golf course that all these millionaires feel like are not worthy of collecting. And she would say, why buy new balls when I can reuse old golf balls? Which I'm like, 
that's actually great. That's a great sustainable way, right? But then things start spiraling and it feels like there's definitely something deeper psychologically that's going on, is just my opinion. And again, it's nothing bad, just food for thought, right? And the next part is fine, but it escalates. For example, all the toiletries in Honey's bathroom were complimentary mini shampoos and conditioners from hotels that they would visit while traveling. She would never even just use them straight up. She would dilute them with water. Most of the clothing that Honey and Barry wore were from the supermarket, like Costco clothes or from the thrift store. The leather belts around their neck when they passed were two for ten dollars from the thrift store Mm. which again all of this is good all of this is great even but allegedly honey's frugal attitude also extended to how she treated people that she hired it's reported that she would pay people a penny and expect to get the value of a dollar which is a not so great trait and because of that she earned the nickname one cent honey oof being frugal to yourself is one thing. Being frugal to employees when you're a billionaire, that's a whole other thing. Honey would also hyper fixate on how much toilet paper they were going through. Allegedly, she would measure it physically to mark the toilet paper to make sure no one in the house was overusing it. That's wow. Now, this is where it gets confusing because some people said that when she went shopping, though, she would spend money. She would buy like 10 designer shoes all at one store, like Jimmy Choo, 10 of them at once and then keep them in her closet, never wear them. So it's not like she never bought designer things. She just never used them. Kevin Donovan, the journalist, described her as a billionaire with drawers full of brand new, never used designer wallets. But instead, she only used an oversized wallet battered, brimming with receipts and notes and held together by a thick rubber band. Wow. So it's interesting, right? So both Barry and Honey grew up poor. Mm -hmm. So it is speculated that these are kind of the poverty anxiety mm-hmm. it does look like she's looking for some sort of control or security or even safety that's a thought not a fact but it feels like a control thing because son of honey's friends even reported that when they would go out to eat she would order for them or for her daughter lauren's birthday she would get a bunch of presents from lauren's friends right and she would hoard them and make sure that lauren didn't open them until weeks later why she didn't want to spoil her too much on her birthday mm. It seems like she wants some level of control, but then other sources state that Honey never filled her tank in her decade-old Lexus that she drove, so she was basically playing gas roulette. Like, nobody ever knew if her car was going to run out of gas on the side of the highway, which feels like the opposite of someone who wants to have some control in their life. So I guess that's why I use the word complicated to describe Honey. Side note, since we're on the topic of money, the Shermans would fly economy for most domestic flights. They would typically fly first class for international flights, but there were apparently a lot of times where they would board a plane for a business meeting and Apotex executives would be sitting first class and they would walk past them and they would joke, oh, I wish I could fly first class one day. Yeah. Honey was known to be very generous with her friends, her sister, and a lot of charities. I mean, her friends absolutely adored her. They said she was a millionaire when we met. Then she became a billionaire. But you would never know. You know, she always took care of us whenever she would talk passionately about her travels around the world. It was never about shopping or where she stayed or what she ate. It was about things she saw, people she met, what she learned. Like she went to meet the Pope, even though she's very Jewish. But, you know, it's the Pope, right? I would meet the Pope. It said that Honey always made people laugh. You know, they said that they would be at dinner parties with the Shermans and they would have this like mischievous look on their faces. And Barry would say, all right, let's go get laid. And both of them would just get up and leave. 
Another time, apparently Barry's friends would send him emails of naked women, like pictures of naked women online, and would write dirty what? jokes. Because, you know, boys will be boys, I guess, is the... Yeah, I don't know, right? I'm not going to judge a billionaire because I don't want to get sued. Honey would find out, and allegedly, she was like, I need to be CC'd on those emails because why should the boys be the only ones having fun? That was the personality of Honey. Yeah. And remember how Honey's sister, Mary, told everyone soon after their deaths that Honey was going to gift her $300 million? Well, allegedly, Honey and Barry had been arguing, and Honey felt bothered that over the years, Barry had gifted hundreds of millions of dollars to their children and friends, but she felt like she had no money to call her own. She always had to ask Barry for money. So by the end of 2017, reportedly, she told friends that Barry was going to give her between 100 to $500 million that would just strictly be hers like spending money, where she wouldn't have to ask Barry or get his permission. She could spend it how she wanted. And allegedly, Mary is claiming that she was going to give her $300 million of that. But probably the most complicated thing about Honey is the allegation that she did not accept her son, Jonathan, because he's gay. It's unclear if this is true, but all of Jonathan's former partners state that Honey was never welcoming to them, which is kind of surprising because one of Barry's best friends since childhood is gay. In fact, Barry's best friend Joel was married with kids when he decided, I'm going to come out. And the first person that he felt comfortable enough calling was Barry. And it's just very conflicting because Barry and Honey are billionaires. And like a lot of people say online, you cannot get to that level of wealth without exploiting someone somewhere, and you can't do it without stepping on a few toes. And Barry Sherman had some big feet, figuratively speaking. He was called by some as the most litigious man in all of Canada. By the time of his death, Barry had filed an estimated 1,200 cases, lawsuits, against the government in federal court. Barry probably cost Canadian taxpayers millions of dollars in legal fees. One of Barry's lawsuits took literally 30 years. Even Barry himself joked that Apotex was a legal company that sold medications on the side. And it said that Barry loved reading and drafting legal briefs. He thrived in this kind of atmosphere. And sometimes Barry would even sue people for like $50,000, which is a lot of money, don't get me wrong. But in one instance, Barry was in a legal battle with a guy named Harvey, who probably was a scam artist, but still, he was in a legal battle for four years. Barry is worth billions of dollars. Let's just say, for simplicity's sake, Barry has $1 billion in his bank account. I know, I know, like you can't have cash sitting like that, whatever. Let's say he has a billion dollars in his account. $50,000 is 0.005% of 1 billion. Meaning if you have $1,000 in your bank account, that same percentage is 5 cents, a nickel. You're suing someone for a nickel. He was in court for four years over a nickel. A close friend of Barry said, you hit Barry Sherman with a fly swatter, he's coming after you with a sledgehammer. Some would argue that's fine. You know, it's not the amount of the money, it's rather the principle, right? Others say this is why billionaires are bad. So Barry's in a legal battle for over $50,000, but at the same time, he would also ponder to his rich friends. Don't you think it's unfair? We have so much. We have so many beautiful things and other people do not. Why should we be served and others do the serving? Who decided that some people get to serve and some people get served? You know the house that they were found in? Barry actually sued the builders of the house. Back in the 80s when they built the house, because they lived in there for a while, when they built the house, the construction took about like $2.5 million. He sued them and won $2 million back. So yeah, he's a very litigious man. He loves a good lawsuit. But you know what lawsuits do? They create a 
bunch of enemies that probably hate your guts because lawsuits can ruin lives. But back to the lawsuits, most of them were not for small amounts for $50,000, but easily several hundreds of millions of dollars were at stake. Barry naturally had a lot of enemies because people think that Barry Sherman monopolized the entire Canadian generic drug industry, and he was considered a king of the pharmaceutical industry, which is kind of a dangerous title to be given. It, It just paints a big red target on your back. And people that probably hated Barry the most were other pharmaceutical giants. And I didn't know this, but there's like two sectors of the pharmaceutical industry. So you've got big pharma, like true big pharma. You're talking brand names like Tylenol. That's a brand name. Advil. That's a brand name. Right. And then you've got generic drug companies. They hate each other. Let me explain. So brand name, big pharma companies like Pfizer, all these different companies, Johnson and Johnson, they will spend billions of dollars developing a new drug. They have to go through clinical trials. It's rough. It's expensive. They finally get it approved by the government. They get it patented. They start selling for a high price because they've already spent billions of dollars on developing this drug. So they need to make their money back. And since it's big pharma we're talking about, they need to make a big fat profit. But then generic drug companies will come in, look at the patented formulas of those new drugs, make it similar, if not nearly identical. Sometimes they have the exact formula and then just add a bunch of filler ingredients that don't harm the person taking it, but just so they can be like, oh, no, 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 our ingredients have different things. But it's like the filler ingredients literally do nothing. It's just there to not infringe on the IP. And since they did not invest billions into developing the drug and the trials, they can sell it for a lot cheaper without affecting their bottom line, making just as much profit as the brand names. It seems like generic drug companies like Apotex get sued left and right by brand name big pharma companies who want to drag them to court to see if their recipe or patent has been violated. And a lot is at stake. If the law determines a patent was violated, the generic company will have to pay the big brand name pharma company a lot of money. If the law determines no patent was violated, then the brand name's patent nulled. It's void. Patent gone. Then everyone can just ravage this ingredient list. Wow. At this point, generic companies probably consider massive multi-million dollar lawsuits just the cost of doing business. Generic drugs are legal and honestly necessary. I love generic drugs because it's cheaper for me. Generic drugs are one of the main factors for curbing the spread of AIDS during the epidemic because cheaper equals more accessible. But it's not that simple, okay? The generic drug industry they're not Robin Hoods. They're also known for doing very questionable things. As a whole, the industry has a history of breaking rules, falsifying data from their manufacturing plants, pushing the laws of patent laws, and fighting amongst each other to be the generic brand that is the first to manufacture a generic of the brand name. And a lot of people have a strong hatred for Apotex. They think Apotex pretends to be for the consumer. And yes, likely their stuff is cheaper than the brand names. But one law professor said, Canadians pay more for generic drugs than almost every other country. Barry sought to manipulate our system to enrich himself and impoverish Canadian patients who used his drugs, implying that Barry stands behind his message of wanting to help the less fortunate get access to drugs. But if that were true, he would lower the prices even more because he easily could. Barry considered himself a Robin Hood. His competitors... Big Pharma considered him a pirate thief piranha. Another pharmaceutical professional who had gone through a legal battle with Barry said, he's the only person I've ever met with no redeeming features whatsoever. Others stated he was so aggressive and down to fight. And they quoted, he never took his foot off the gas. 
Another source says that some rival company executive used unprintable language to describe him, meaning like you cannot print that in the newspapers because it's probably just curse words. And even Apotex executives have confirmed that if Barry Sherman or Apotex was in the news, the news coverage was never positive. So whether that's for good reason, I guess, is up for you to decide. And side note, just to give you the other side, most friends of the couple said Barry and Honey were amazing people. One friend stated, while on one hand, they were rich beyond anybody's wildest dreams, they were always rooted in community. He said one time he asked Barry to help him get painkillers, like Advil and Tylenol level of painkillers. And he asked for help because in Cuba, there was an embargo at the time and Cubans didn't have access to simple medications like that. And in response, he said Barry shipped him hundreds of pounds of medicine, which he and his friends, his relatives packed into suitcases and delivered to Havana. He said the Shermans never said no when people needed help. Not only did they always say yes, they said yes with enthusiasm. But it's still clear that the couple had a lot of enemies, and one of the most intense legal battles that they were currently involved in was with the CEO of Apotex and a rival company called Tiva USA. So Tiva was suing Apotex because Jeremy Desai, the married CEO of Apotex, because remember, Barry Sherman is just chairman. Mm. So Jeremy Desai is CEO, and he's married, Okay. He was allegedly having an affair with the senior director of regulatory affairs at Tiva, a rival generic drug company. Tiva is saying the CEO of Apotex literally wanted to sleep with one of our employees to try and get our trade secrets during pillow talk. Jeremy denied everything and said that he did have a personal relationship with that Tiva director, but they were not serious and they never shared any trade secrets. But Tiva does not believe him. So they're pursuing Apotex and Jeremy for allegedly stealing company secrets. And because Jeremy is the CEO of Apotex, or was, one could easily draw connections and believe that Jeremy was trying to steal Tiva's secrets and Barry knew what he was doing. Not saying that it's true, but one might think that it was a plot between Barry and some of the other higher-ups at Apotex. Especially because Barry stuck by Jeremy's side the whole time. He even bought him a $3.2 million house, unrelated to the lawsuit, but still, you know? Some netizens theorized that Barry had pissed off enough competitors that they would want him dead. Barry even said so himself that everyone in the industry hated him. He said, the branded drug companies, so the big brand brand names they hate us they have private investigators on us all the time the thought once came to my mind why didn't they just hire someone to knock me off for a thousand bucks paid to the right person you could probably get someone killed perhaps i'm surprised that hasn't happened wow the types of enemies that barry has i mean they're no joke he likely had big pharma companies pis barry himself hired private investigators to go through his competitors trash Okay. So these are some crazy people we're talking about. In yeah. my opinion, no offense, sorry. So is that what happened? The police's criminal psychology experts don't think so. They speculate if it was merely for financial gain or to get rid of a powerful competitor, they would choose a clean, swift execution style hit rather than lingering around the crime scene. Intentionally positioning the corpses in an odd manner, that suggests that whoever killed the Sherman couple was not just in it for money and business. It felt more personal, something deeper. It said the perpetrator didn't just want to witness their painful deaths, but wanted to humiliate their corpses. 
And since we're exploring that theory, that it has more to do with the Sherman status or line of work rather than interpersonal relationships, some even suspected that what if it was just like an organized home invasion gone wrong? So this area of Toronto, all these rich people had experienced a ton of home robberies, like talking about tens of millions of dollars worth of stuff missing, gone, stolen. And now the burglars had staged the scene to make it appear like the couple chose to take their own lives. To back up that theory, the Sherman home was broken into last year and the burglars came in through a skylight. Wow. Yeah. So Holy. it's like organized crime type like vibe. suspended from the air. Yeah. Like bank heist type vibe. Wow. But this theory doesn't make sense because the house wasn't ransacked. Home invasions gone wrong typically leave a lot of violent evidence behind. And if the home invaders were staging the scene to make it look like a double exit, wouldn't it have been smarter to suspend them from the ceiling? Like, this scene is so bizarre that it kind of is incredible that the police didn't think that it was staged from the get-go. It's more likely that they were killed by someone that they knew intimately. Because the killer or killers, they knew the Sherman schedule. So the Shermans were killed Wednesday night. They had no important meetings on Thursday, which is why they were found Friday morning. So people were trying to get in contact with them on Thursday, but because there was no pressing urgent matter, they were like, oh, I'm sure they're just busy. The killers found a way into the home without breaking in so that they knew the layout of the house. They also knew that the house didn't have any interior security cameras. They did have a camera set up in the indoor lap pool, but it was never connected or officially set up. But if you looked at it, you wouldn't be able to tell. Mm, so you wouldn't use that as the location? No. Unless you know that's not working? Yes. So that means you had to know this couple. It's not like you're just watching from the outside tailing them like organized yeah. crime. No, wow. you know them. Yeah. The staging of the scene felt very personal and maybe it even had to do with the statues because it seems like they were posed like the Sherman artwork. When the Toronto police finally announced the Sherman deaths to be a murder case, one person willingly stepped forward to talk about how much he hated the murder victims. So now we're about to touch very briefly on the three netizen suspects. So these are not police official suspects. In fact, police have ruled a lot of these people out. These are what the internet thinks who is the guiltiest. And I'm not an attorney, so I'm not sure why he did this. Carrie Winters is netizen suspect number one. Barry's cousin stated he hated Barry. He said that the couple were profit-driven, ungrateful, and deserved their fate. He also goes on to allege that a few months before Barry's death, Barry came to him and said, Hey, I have a favor. Can you whack my wife? Carrie said, Come on, Barry. You want me to kill your wife? He claimed that Barry said, There is no way she's getting half of my money. No, I didn't say you. You must know some people. Could you arrange that for me? which is a very bold claim to make. The police had no way of verifying if this conversation even actually happened, so they asked Carrie to take a lie detector test. That lasted three hours, and he failed probably spectacularly. And he said, you know, I probably had reasons to lash out and do the dirty deed, but absolutely not. I had nothing to do with the murders. I don't know who did it. Here are my feelings about Barry. I'm not going to call him a serial killer or a sociopath, or a pathological liar. That's for shrinks. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just a recovering addict trying to get through a day. But I can say this. Barry's idea of friendship, love, honor, loyalty, things that bind people, was a foreign concept. This was a man I don't think had any friends. Carrie also claimed that after filing the lawsuit against Barry, Barry told him, you're thinking of coming after me? You should think twice because you won't beat me. You don't know who I am yet. Netizens who believe Carrie is guilty think that it's clear he has motive, a very envious personality, and a deep hatred for the couple. He probably knew their schedules, and there's no forced entry because he's still their cousin at the end of the day. If he showed up to talk to them, I feel like Honey would let him in. 
But Carrie does have an alibi. It said that he was in a rehab the night of the incident, so he couldn't have done it himself. Then considering the fact that after losing the legal battle to Barry, Carrie was in debt, so he was likely incapable of hiring a hitman. And it was implied by the police that Carrie's IQ and EQ were not sufficient enough to orchestrate a complex unsolved double homicide. So I do think the whole situation with the Winter Brothers is sad. And while I think most people do feel a tiny bit of sympathy for them since their parents passed, they were still born into a life of privilege. When they were of age, they were given trust funds. They had a huge leg up in this world and they kind of blew it. And yes, some people do speculate. Barry probably started Apotex knowing that he wanted to have full initial ownership of his company instead of giving the Winter Brothers a big chunk. But in regard to the Winter Brothers... He did everything legally. Barry did. I mean, I guess the ethical part is the part to be argued. Many netizens admit it seemed like Barry tried. He tried to give them all funds and businesses. None of them worked very hard, considering they had the upper hand. Tim, the chef, is doing fine. But two of the brothers, Dana and Carrie, they fell into drugs. Dana was actually charged with murder. Barry paid for his attorney. What? But soon after, Dana died of an overdose. It was like a drug deal gone wrong. Oh my gosh. So it seemed like they never really seemed to understand the value of money, even when they received trust funds. And yeah, Carrie admitted he blew all of his money on luxury travel and drugs. So to sum it up, many netizens believe that while Carrie had the strongest motive out of all the quote internet suspects, he likely didn't have the means to commit a double homicide. Then we have netizen suspect number two, Jonathan Sherman, who owed his dad around $60 million. Now, I'm not the one saying this, but it is argued that the Sherman children did not adopt their father's genius IQ and business acumen. And maybe Barry knew that. Every time Jonathan, his only son, had a business idea, Barry would lend him money with a note that was like, this is a loan and I'm charging interest. $60 million? It, some figures say closer to $100 million. For what? Random businesses. Wow. And before he died, Barry wanted his money back. Barry emailed Jonathan asking for the principal investment money back. He doesn't have to worry about interest, but you're still talking about $60 million. Jonathan claimed that he was mad when he got that email, like really mad. But it it stated that he wasn't even mad because his dad wanted the money back. To him, that was fine. It had always been a loan. But it was the fact that his dad came to him first. So there had been so many people that his dad had lent out money to that he wasn't getting a return on his investment on. Why would he come to his son first? In an email he wrote to his dad, can you explain it to me? I'm bright and educated. If you explain it to me, I'm going to try and understand. And his dad said, explain what exactly? How do you determine what's worthwhile to invest more money with? So your best friend, Frank, despite year after year of losses, what are you seeing in his businesses that everyone else is missing? Jonathan is annoyed that his dad is still funding his best friend, Frank, but wanting to stop funding him, his own son. And he's saying, like, I actually care about my businesses. If you ask anyone I work with, like, I'm there every single day. You ask the employees that I work with, like, they like me. I'm trying to foster a culture. He's like saying all these things and you want me to pay the investment back. But your best buddy, Frank, over there, everybody hates him. He's losing all your money and you don't want your money back from him. We're family. That's kind of the vibe I got from some of these emails, little snippets. It also seemed that father and son didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Jonathan seemed to have much more expensive taste than Barry. And so many netizens think that he's the biggest suspect because he would actually be the only one of the suspects to actually gain something from his parents dying. Billions of dollars. Mm. 
And he did say something kind of strange at his parents' funeral. He said, neither of you had to suffer like we are suffering now, which people felt like was kind of an odd thing to say. Because if they were hanging or were murdered, you would imagine that's quite a bit of suffering, right? Even Jonathan himself willingly told a journalist that all three of his sisters initially suspected him of being the killer. But he believes it's just jealousy that accumulated over the years. He was kind of the favorite child in terms of business. Reportedly, his dad, Barry, was pretty saddened by the fact that Jonathan did not want to take over Apotex one day. But it's interesting because the German kids, right, they hired Canada's top attorney, Brian Greenspan, and a whole legal team. They funded a pricey, multi-million dollar private investigation team filled with retired detectives and even had a leg of private forensic investigators to study their parents' bodies. I mean, they're funding an investigation into their parents' deaths alongside the Toronto police. But the interesting part is Jonathan said he was the one that suggested this whole idea to get the attorneys involved, which it's only through the attorney's involvement in the case that it was classified a double homicide. Homicide. Mm-hmm. Additionally, the private team funded by the Sherman kids have been really proactive in just combing through, looking for evidence, trying to offer to scan the pool with like this small, fine particle vacuum to pick up any hairs if there's any evidence. But the police didn't do it. So they're doing a lot. Why would Jonathan want to hire these people in the first place if he's guilty? He would just let the police conclude it as a murder suicide and walk away a billionaire. Additionally, the original reward for anyone who had information on his parents' deaths was $10 million. He personally funded $25 million to up it to $35 million. And that's just from Jonathan alone, the other $25 million. Which, yeah, I mean, technically is a drop in the bucket for his newfound billionaire status. But others say, maybe this guy is just weird and he didn't have the perfect relationship with his parents. But would he really kill both of his parents? Another argument is, you know, for us, like normal people, your parents asking you for $60 million back could seem like the biggest stress in the world, right? Could seem like a big deal. You're indebted $60 million. But to these people, it might just be like play money. You're like, "Eh, I'll give it to him when I give it to him. Mm Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like his dad would have done something if he didn't get it back. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying that doesn't give him the biggest motive. Yes, but a lot of netizens are like, we might think it does because we don't have billionaire dads. But, you know, just might not work like that, right? Jonathan argued if the motive was inheritance, the sisters should also be considered suspects. And food for thought, if he were falsely implicated, each of them would gain an extra billion dollars in wealth. And netizen suspect number three. Frank D'Angelo. Frank is a character straight out of a movie because uh, he did actually star in a few gangster-themed movies that Barry Sherman funded. His parents are Italian, and at one point he owned a beer company. He hosted a late-night talk show, tried to get into politics, and starred in movies that Barry funded. He's 20 years younger than Barry, and basically the complete opposite of Barry, but somehow the friendship worked. To give you some context, Frank D'Angelo says things like, I suck at golf, but I do look spectacular on the golf course. The first meeting was in Barry's office where Frank proudly placed a container of apple juice on Barry's desk and told him to try it. He was an apple juice sales rep. And I don't know if the juice was that good or if Barry was just looking for a new friendship. They got along instantly. Frank would actually become one of the closest members to Barry's inner circle, which is very lucrative because Frank would have access to the bank of Barry. When Frank's juice company went bankrupt, he showed Barry a poorly written business proposal to start a beer brewing factory which he doesn't have any experience he just really likes beer 
Yeah, Barry the billionaire helped his friend fund this new company. He paid for Frank to tour Europe to learn new techniques and buy equipment. When Frank wanted to sponsor an ice hockey game with his beer company, Barry funded it. So he had all of his ads on like some of the biggest ice hockey games in Canada. They barely saw any returns. Customers were complaining that despite the high dollar advertisement, which is rumored to have been around $15 million spent on ice hockey endorsements alone, the craft beer just tasted like regular beer that you could get at the store for a few bucks. Then in 2007, Frank decided to go into the industry. He hosted a late night talk show, released an album, wrote, directed, and starred in several street gang themed movies. And obviously the financial backer to all of his projects was his best friend, Barry Sherman. There are no exact figures, but there are estimates that have been thrown around that Barry had spent like a quarter billion dollars on Frank D'Angelo, $250 million during the course of their friendship. And it seemed like at least one of the Sherman kids, Jonathan, was getting sick of it. It's interesting because Barry seems to have been very generous with all of his friends, but the most generous with Frank. And a lot of people suspect it's because Barry's friends were all academics like himself. They all kind of had their own things going on and they all grew up or ran in the same circles. Frank was not that at all. He had everything Barry didn't have. He was indulgent, reckless, wild. When he was young, Frank had joined a band, like out of nowhere, and he started touring across North America with no money, spending all this money to go to all these different cities where nobody knew him, making no money, no return. He had to live on hot water where he would pour ketchup inside, stir it into a soup, and then put some crackers in. That was his meal like for a long time, which is not necessarily a bad story, but I think it gives you an idea of his impulsivity. Barry literally could never do that because of the line of work that he's in. And he has a whole family. So maybe he's funding Frank's dreams to kind of vicariously live through him. Hmm. But did Frank kill Barry in anger because he knew that Barry was going to wean him off or cut him off soon? Some netizens say yes. The anger, passion, hatred, those are things that you can't really understand. They make people do crazy things. And there is another case linked to Frank that netizens have been bringing up. The ones that think that he's guilty. Frank was accused at one point of sexual assault. I will say that he was acquitted, but a victim alleged that she had gone to his office to interview for a position as like an event coordinator. He allegedly asked her to come to the hotel next door to finish up the paperwork, but instead he essayed her. Frank would argue that the two did have intimate relations, but it was consensual. He was 49 at the time. She was 19. Frank was acquitted, but the judge said Frank was, quote, probably guilty, but they didn't have enough evidence to charge him. After he was released, press was waiting for him and he responded, I would appreciate you guys have a little decorum. I'm a little emotional. Many netizens use this as proof that this man is emotional, power hungry, sketchy, doesn't like to take no for an answer. Some netizens argue the opposite. They say, no matter how angry and hot-headed Frank seems to be, Frank seems to be a lot more driven by money than anything else. So why would he kill the goose that laid the golden eggs for him? It seems unlikely that he thought that he was in Barry's will or thought that he would get something out of his death, right? So why would he do that? Frank argues that he would never kill his friends. He said just three days before Barry's murder, Barry came over and the two shared a breakfast together. And it seemed like Barry was a little bit sad. He even said something along the lines of allegedly, having you, Frank, as a friend is enough for my lifetime. I can die without regrets. Which is an odd thing to claim that someone said three days before they died. But Frank insists he knew that Barry was murdered from day one. And he said that he believes at least two people were involved in the killing. So there is this scary, lingering question of if billionaires' murders don't get solved, will anybody else's? 
To give some context, the police clearly dropped the ball quite a bit on this case. And I don't know if I would say it's the worst thing that I've seen police officers and detectives do, but I definitely would not use the words competent investigations to describe their handling of this one, at least initially. Here are a few of the initial police fumbles. When they first arrived at the scene, they separated all three women that were at the Sherman residence, the housekeeper, realtor, and the gardener. But they let the housekeeper stay in the front of the house. She was nervous, stressed, in shock. She had no idea what to do. So to calm herself down, she continued to do her job she continued to mop it seems like she genuinely meant well and i don't think that she realized that this was a crime scene she was just in shock it took so long for an officer to inform her hey don't mop the floor because you're going to contaminate a crime scene clearly too late for that a few other things to point out. The police working this case didn't even visit Apotex till three days after the bodies were found. The lead detective assigned to this case didn't even show up to the Sherman residence till four days after their bodies were found. Detective Price, the one that was talking to the media when news first broke, he was a newer detective who had no idea that his verbiage of stating that they were not looking for any suspects right now would be taken as the police believe that this is a murder exit. The police were also slow to establish a timeline of events on when the Shermans were last seen and who they were last heard from. They didn't even start asking Apotex for the Shermans' whereabouts until three days later. And Dawson, the security guard at Apotex, he really liked Barry. He said Barry and him, they had a little inside joke where they both liked tomato juice. And so Barry always told him to sneak into his office and take tomato juice because he's got good taste. So... Dawson is like, I'm going to try my best to help this guy because I like him, you know, and it's morally the right thing to do. He gave the police the files of footage from the last day the Shermans were in office and it's speculated they went home immediately after this and then were murdered later that night. So this could be very important. He yeah. gave them the footage. And it showed them having a meeting with the new house architects, Honey leaving Apotex at around 6.30 p.m. going home, Barry leaving at around 8.30 p.m. going home. Their estimated time of death was 9 to 11 p.m. This is technically the last time they were ever seen alive. He gives them this footage. A month later, he gets a call. The police are like, hey, do you have the software? We need to look at the security footage. And he's like, you haven't looked at it? It's been a month. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Additionally, there was a real estate lockbox at the front of the door. And I don't know if these are still used these days, but it's like a mini safe. You punch in a code and it unlocks to reveal the house key. Realtors will use this to give showings when the homeowners or the other available realtors are, aren't there. Now, that lockbox wasn't checked for a while to see if the spare key had gone missing or stolen. The only reason the police even checked was because the realtor kept calling, asking, do you guys check? Did you guys check? Key people in the couple's lives were not interviewed for months. The former Apotex CEO, Jeremy Desai, was not interviewed for two months, even though he had exchanged emails with the couple the night of their murder. The emails reveal nothing, but still, Jeremy was embroiled in that legal battle with the competitor, Tiva. Mm -hmm. They didn't talk to him for months. <laughs> and it's scary for netizens, because if this is how you treat potential murders of billionaires, think about how they're going to treat us. Other people who had access to the home were not fingerprinted until almost a year after the couple's death. And then presumably the worst fumbles, the Sherman's next door neighbor told the police almost immediately, we have CCTV footage that show the exterior of the Sherman residence and we caught someone on the Sherman property on Thursday. What? 
Thursday. So murdered on Wednesday, Thursday, they saw someone on CCTV. Friday, they were found. The neighbors were under the impression at the time that the Shermans were actually killed on Thursday instead of Wednesday. So they were like really urgently telling the police, like, you need to come get this footage because our security system like rewrites itself every seven days. They're like, we looked through the footage. We saw a suspicious man walk back and forth from the Sherman front door. We recorded the time codes. And in total, it looked like the man had spent a total of 29 minutes, presumably inside the house. Just a quick disclaimer, the footage doesn't show the actual front door. So theoretically, the man could have just been standing at the front door for 29 minutes. But that seems unlikely in the Canada winter. You would think that the police would be all over this, right? The neighbors are pestering them, calling them multiple times to remind them, we have this footage. Wow. It took a long time for the police to finally like slowly come and be like, where's the footage? And what was it? Nothing? They don't know. Yeah. We don't know who that man is. <laughs> we have an idea, which I'll get into. It's believed that the man in the footage was a police officer. Okay. What? It gets crazy. So let me explain. A year later, some dots are getting connected. Another neighbor about 10 houses down from the Sherman residence said on Thursday night, they received a knock on the door from a police officer who was like, hey, did you call the police yesterday? And the neighbors are like, no, we didn't. So it led people to believe the night of their deaths, Honey was in the powder room trying to escape and call authorities. Maybe the call was dropped and they couldn't get the exact home location. They just got like a general idea from the dropped 911 call. I don't know how they couldn't look up the phone records and know that it belonged to the Shermans, but still. And presumably, maybe the police were going door to door to be like, did you call? And they went to the Shermans, but they weren't answering. (sighs) But then they were like, okay, should be fine. But we don't know if that was a plainclothes officer, but that's what the online internet sleuths believe because the police were so nonchalant about that footage. Maybe they didn't want to admit that was a police officer and they missed a 911 call and they didn't show up until a full day later and they still didn't even do like a wellness check. Jeez, so many questions. So why did the police fumble so bad? Well, Frank D'Angelo thinks that the police are protecting the Shermans. From who, from what? I don't know, right? Is he alluding that they're protecting the Sherman kids? I don't know, right? But a lot of sources believe the police actually just fumbled the bag because a serial killer was active around the same time. Bruce MacArthur, who is one of Canada's most notorious serial killers, was killing gay men in the Toronto area. And apparently just a week before the Sherman murders, they had a huge break in the case. So that's probably why the authorities were not on top of this case at all. Some sources even state that most homicide detectives in that greater Toronto area were working on the serial killer case. And the Sherman case was just filled with random detectives from like fraud departments, random departments that typically don't deal with homicide because people are dying. Like we got to go stop the serial killer right now. And now the house on 50 Old Colony Road, North York, Toronto, Canada, no longer exists. The whole demolition of that $7 million mansion was very controversial because it still unsolved the case. Yeah. Apparently, the structure was demoed, but inside the house, there were lots of furniture, appliances, even photos on the wall. Netizens thought, wouldn't family members who love the couple so much want to preserve these things? The Sherman kids' choice to destroy everything in the house, wouldn't it make it more difficult for police to find the real culprit, is what netizens thought. I mean, it's not like they need the money from the land or the house sale. But the kids argued it pained them to see the house just sitting there. They also stated that they spent countless days sorting through and donating everything. And it was just difficult because the police had ransacked the entire place trying to gather evidence. They donated a lot of the couple's clothes and raised thousands of dollars for charity. 
Now, this is where the story keeps getting crazier. Two days before the house was demolished, an urban explorer, that's what they call themselves, the people that go and explore like abandoned hospitals and abandoned towns, he snuck in to the Sherman home. unrelated to the case he doesn't know the shermans he just knows about the case online he explores creepy haunted places online and he's he like go there because of he knows it's them okay. and because the house is about to get demolished okay so the electricity had been cut off he said he opened the door to a pitch black space he had his flashlight the entire house was creepy he said there was stuff everywhere furniture clothing artwork books personal stuff photos of the deceased everywhere he said every room that he stepped into he just said jesus christ he said the master bedroom had holes punched through the walls it looked like somebody was looking for something in the walls that's not what the place would have looked like at the time of the crime but it's just like after everything right but the worst part he said he walked into the underground pool room he expected his flashlight to hit the water and reflect off of it right and help illuminate the room but instead it was just this dark hole that swallowed up his light he said the room smelled awful and everything was dead silent He said this was far darker than anything that he's usually interested in. He said, needless to say, it's something I'd never want to do again. Such terrible energy. The fact that it was in complete darkness made it more sinister. He said he went home, uploaded a few pictures to Reddit, and according to him, within minutes, received a cease and desist from the Sherman children's attorney, telling him to immediately delete all information or else there will be legal action. Wow. So... Two days after the home was demolished, the family sold the plot of land for $4.25 million to a 28-year-old professional swimmer that lived nearby. And we do have an update on this case. December 14th of 2021, almost exactly four years after their deaths, Toronto police released surveillance footage of a man in black winter clothing walking, quote, with purpose near the Sherman residence the time of their deaths. Authorities just kind of released it and said, this is who we're looking for. But they've been really tight-lipped about this, other than the fact that all we know is the footage is from Wednesday night. It's in line with the time of the murder. The man is likely between 5'6 to 5'9, and that's it. The interesting part is body language experts have noted that based on the walking man, that's how people dub him, um, the walking man's posture and gait, the way he walks, they think it's highly likely that he had undergone many years of military training. And now a new theory has emerged. Maybe whoever wanted the Shermans dead didn't do it themselves. They could have hired a retired police officer turned professional assassin or a former special forces operative turned hitman to do the dirty deed. That is what the new online theory is. But authorities even stated, we just really have this footage. For all we know, this man in this footage could be completely unrelated to the case. It's just a theory we're exploring. So there's that. But this is the first time in the case that the police have officially classified someone as a suspect. They've always had persons of interest, but not a suspect. The police have also sent out warrants to five different countries, which were undisclosed. So it's rumored, could this walking man perhaps have fled to a different country? But all of this, again, just bolsters the online theory that someone who knew the billionaire Shermans wanted them dead. Their alleged murders remain unsolved, even with one of the highest rewards in true crime history, $35 million. Jonathan stated during his parents' funeral, My sisters and I pledge to rise again and to continue thriving and to continue building our parents' legacy of loving life, caring for others, and knowing, as our parents always reminded us, that with great privilege comes enormous responsibility. We promise to honor your legacy by staying together, staying strong, and of course, continuing your legacy of giving. But that is where we are with this case right now. It's a very complicated case. I will say I had some trouble with this one. You know, we're talking about two victims of a potential double homicide 
but then you're also talking about so much social conversation of these victims are billionaires, right? And exactly who could have, it's just, it just felt very complex. Yeah, just very complicated. What are your thoughts on this case? Please stay safe and I will see you guys on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.